It was meant to be. Perchance, as oft I ponder when in vacant or in pensive mood, the old pagan philosophers were right in believing that we have all lived other lives in other ages of the world. Perchance that encounter in the dusty halls of the old Bulak Museum was not our first meeting, for there was a compelling familiarity about those blazing sapphirine orbs, those steady lips and dented chin, though, to be sure, at the time it was hidden by a bushy beard, which I later persuaded Emerson to remove. Still in vacant and in pensive mood, I allowed my fancy to wander, as we perchance had wandered among the mighty pillars of ancient Karnak, his strong, sun-brown hand clasping mine, his muscular frame attired in the short kilt and beaded collar that would have displayed his splendid physique to best advantage. I perceive I have been swept away by emotion, as I so often am when I contemplate Emerson's remarkable attributes. Allow me to return to my narrative. No mere mortal should expect to attain perfect bliss in this imperfect world. I am a rational individual. I did not expect it. However, there are limits to the degree of aggravation a woman may endure. And in the spring of 1895, when we were about to leave Egypt after another season of excavation, I had reached that limit. Thoughtless persons have sometimes accused me of holding an unjust prejudice against the male sex. Even Emerson has hinted at it, and Emerson of all people should know better. When I assert that most of the aggravation I have endured has been caused by members of that sex, it is not prejudice, but a simple statement of fact. Beginning with my estimable but maddeningly absent-minded father and five despicable brothers, Continuing through assorted murderers, burglars, and villains, the list even includes my own son. In fact, if I kept a ledger, Walter Peabody Emerson, known to friends and foes alike as Ramses, would win the prize for the constancy and the degree of aggravation caused me. One must know Ramses to appreciate him. I use the verb in its secondary meaning, to be fully sensible of through personal experience, rather than to approve warmly or esteem highly. I cannot complain of his appearance, for I am not so narrow-minded as to believe that Anglo-Saxon colouring is superior to the olive skin and jetty curls of the eastern Mediterranean races Ramses strongly and unaccountably resembles. His intelligence, as such, is not a source of dissatisfaction. I had taken it for granted that any child of Emerson's and mine would exhibit superior intelligence, but I confess I hadn't anticipated it would take such an extraordinary form. Linguistically, Ramses was a juvenile genius. He had mastered the hieroglyphic language of ancient Egypt before his eighth birthday. He spoke Arabic with appalling fluency, the adjective refers to certain elements of his vocabulary, and even his command of his native tongue was marked at an early age by a ponderous pomposity of style more suitable to a venerable scholar than a small boy. People were often misled by this talent into believing Ramses must be equally precocious in other areas. 
Catastrophically precocious was a term sometimes applied by those who came upon Ramses unawares. Yet, like the young Mozart, he had one supreme gift, an ear for languages as remarkable as was Mozart's for music, and was, if anything, rather below the average in other ways. I need not remind the cultured reader of Mozart's unfortunate marriage and miserable death. Ramses was not without amiable qualities. He was fond of animals, often to extremes, as when he took it upon himself to liberate caged birds or chained dogs from what he considered to be cruel and unusual punishment. He was always being nipped and scratched, once by a young lion, and the owners of the animals in question frequently objected to what they viewed as a form of burglary. As I was saying, Ramses had a few amiable qualities. He was completely free of class snobbery. In fact, the little wretch preferred to sit around the souk, exchanging vulgar stories with lower-class Egyptians, instead of playing nice games with little English girls and boys. He was much happier in bare feet and a ragged galabia than when wearing his nice black velvet suit with the lace collar. The amiable qualities of Ramses. He did not often disobey a direct command, providing, of course, that higher moral considerations did not take precedence, the definition being that of Ramses himself, and the order was couched in terms specific enough to allow no possible loophole through which Ramses could squirm. It would have required the talents of a Lord Chief Justice and a Director General of the Jesuit Order to compose such a command. The amiable qualities of Ramses? I believe he had a few others, but I cannot call them to mind at the moment. However, for once it was not Ramses who caused me aggravation that spring. No, my adored, my admired, my distinguished spouse was the guilty party. Emerson had some legitimate reasons for being in an evil humour. We had been excavating at Dashur, a site near Cairo that contains some of the noblest pyramids in all Egypt. The Furman, permit from the Department of Antiquities giving us permission to excavate, had not been easy to secure. For the director of the department, Monsieur de Morgan, had intended to keep the site for himself. I had never asked him why he gave it up. Ramses was involved in some manner, and when Ramses was involved... I preferred not to inquire into details. Knowing my particular passion for pyramids, Emerson had been naively pleased at being able to provide them. He'd even given me a little pyramid of my very own to explore, one of the small subsidiary pyramids which were intended, as some believe, for the burials of the pharaoh's wives. Though I had greatly enjoyed exploring the dank, bat-infested passageways of the miniature monument, I had discovered absolutely nothing of interest, only an empty burial chamber and a few scraps of basketry. Our efforts to ascertain the cause of the sudden, inexplicable winds that occasionally swept through the passages of the bent pyramid had proved futile. If there were concealed openings and unknown passageways, we hadn't found them. Even the Black Pyramid, in whose sunken burial chamber we had once been imprisoned, proved a disappointment. Owing to an unusually high Nile, 
the lower passages were flooded, and Emerson was unable to procure the hydraulic pump he had hoped to use. I will tell you a little secret about archaeologists, dear reader. They all pretend to be very high-minded. They claim that their sole aim in excavation is to uncover the mysteries of the past and add to the store of human knowledge. They lie. What they really want is a spectacular discovery, so they can get their names in the newspapers and inspire envy and hatred in the hearts of their rivals. At Dachour, Monsieur de Morgan had attained his dream by discovering, how I refuse to ask, the jewels of a princess of the Middle Kingdom. The glamour of gold and precious stones casts a mystic spell. De Morgan's discovery, I do not and never will inquire how he made it, won him the fame he desired, including a fulsome article and a flattering engraving in the illustrated London News. One so-called scholar who excelled at getting his name into print was Mr. Wallace Budge, the representative of the British Museum, who had supplied that institution with some of its finest exhibits. Everyone knew that Budge had acquired his prizes not from excavation, but from illegal antiquities dealings, and had smuggled them out of the country in direct contravention of the laws governing such exports. Emerson would have scorned to follow Budge's example, but he would have settled for a steely like the one his chief rival Petrie had found the year before. The world of biblical scholarship was a buzz about it, for it contained the first and thus far the only mention in Egyptian records of the word Israel. This was a genuine scholarly achievement, and my dear Emerson would have sold his soul to the devil 